With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm here today to talk with Laura Smith, a professor of art history at Michigan State University, about her new book, Horace Pula, Photographer of American Indian Modernity. Professor Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I thought that we might start because I think a lot of our listeners, this is the first time they've heard Horace Pula's name. And so I was wondering if you could just start by, by telling us a little bit about Horace Pula. Uh, sure. He was, um, he's recognized as one of the first professional American Indian photographers in the early 20th century. Uh, he was born in 1906 in Mountain View, Oklahoma. That's really close to Anadarko, southwestern uh, Oklahoma. <clears throat> and uh, picked up photography uh, somewhat on his own and somewhat kind of mentored by studio photographers in these the small towns in Oklahoma who kind of uh, <clears throat> let him apprentice with them. And sometimes they passed on some of their cameras to him. Uh, and uh, this all, I think most of his really conscious effort at professional photography began in the late 1920s. Uh, and he photographed <clears throat> mostly portraits um, of people in his community. He's Kiowa. I, sh- I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. Southern Plains Indian. Um, <clears throat> uh, through the mid-1970s, and then uh, his health declined, and uh, he died about 1984. Mm. Um, when did you first hear uh, his name? I heard about him in graduate school. I did my master's in art history at the University of New Mexico, working under uh, Joyce Zabo. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a class on modernism or modernity or American Indian modern arts, something like that. And he uh, had just kind of come to national consciousness as a result of a touring exhibition uh, sponsored or co-hosted by Stanford University uh, that his, mm. his daughter was involved with there. Um, <clears throat> did you have another question or you want me to go? No, 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 no. no. Okay. okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, so so he, he had just been, this exhibition had been touring as probably one of the first where he came to national consciousness um, with this touring exhibition and there was a catalog that came out. And so uh, most people were 
became familiar there. And so Joyce was showing his images and I was just fascinated because I really hadn't seen photography from American Indian communities in this early 20th century period mm. uh, before. And they set up such a difference from a lot of the images from the 19th century or taken by Edward Curtis or somebody. So, mm -hmm. um, so what's the, when, when you first saw those photographs of Pula, what, what struck you in particular when you first saw them? Um, <clears throat> that they were pictures of Indians, I, I don't know, driving cars and airplanes, mm -hmm. uh, taking part in kind of a, uh, popular culture, like uh, playing with ideas about Indians that we see in movies, uh, Indians uh, <clears throat> in uh, flapper, wearing flapper outfits and uh, engaged in 20th century culture is really kind of a um, very exciting, uh, positive, vital uh, period of time. Uh, whereas I think most of the stories that I'd heard up to that point or seen in terms of visual imagery are, are more about, you know, Indians losing so much. And indeed mm -hmm. they did lose a lot, but there was quite a uh, ongoing resistance and vitality to cultures at the same time. So uh, there, there was... <clears throat> ongoing life to indigenous people, indigenous cultures, they survived. And um, I think that his, his work really helped tell the story. Yeah. But you know, what's fascinating about the book is that you try to, you know, situate him uh, in art history and you call him uh, you know, a modernist. And so I'm wondering, you know, what's really at stake? Why is it so important to call Pula a modernist? Well, you know, I am an art historian and I am a, an Americanist art historian. So these, you know, this is kind of uh, me <clears throat> speaking from that position and uh, being focused on a need in art histories, either in surveys, in coursework, in scholarship or in exhibitions to really decenter uh, our story or the story that has been told about 20th century American art. Um, mm. <clears throat> And uh, it, it, there is a story out there, a master narrative, as all of us learn to, to talk about. And we've been talking about this master narrative for a very long time. Uh, and for Indigenous artists, I think that that uh, still continues to be an important conversation to realize that there are multiple art history stories um, out there. They're not all focused on the same aesthetic concerns, um, indigenous peoples who were completely positioned about in the early 20th century as kind of um, uh, wards of the state. They weren't even citizens, many of them, mm -hmm. but they were going to be speaking and, and making art from a very different perspective from, uh, you know, the, the European and American modernists that generally get focused on. Mm -hmm. uh, so... So a lot of my interest is in how do we decenter de that dialogue? How can we bring in more voices? Um, <clears throat> how can we, you know, really look at the structures of that story that's been told and realize how it's um, uh, excluded a, a lot of uh, a lot of voices? Yeah, I mean, for for the listeners who who might not be um, conversant in in art history, you know, what, what is uh, what is modernist really meant 
uh, for people who are classified as modernists? Um, what, what are their what are their what does their work actually look like? Um, the the story that really got codified, I guess, mid twentieth century about modern modern modernist art or modern art. Uh, was kind of this the story of the evolution to abstraction. Mm. Uh, so modernist art really, uh, <clears throat> as it has been unified in the master narrative, uh, it, it has a focus on uh, abstract ab- abstraction and um, uh, individual expression. So we're much more focused on the artist persona or psyche, mm. Uh, engaged and uh, within his work and, and his personal expression. Um, so those are, are the primary ways. Mm. Um, it's really kind of art that is separate or disengaged from the mundane, the vernacular, uh, the, the secular world, and becomes something of you know only concerned of really separate from. Uh, mundane reality, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. or secular concerns. Yeah, and what, what's in what's in Pula's work in particular that would would make him a, a modernist and kind of expand the definition a bit? Um, some of the things I look at um, are the ways that he engaged his contemporary reality. Mm. Um, he wasn't. Uh, he certainly is. Um, uh, aware of his history, um, <clears throat> and aware of his legacy, his, his father being, um, an important recorder of history in his community. Um, I think that he is taking his camera to kind of, kind of, um, continue that legacy, but also uh, engage the contemporary moment. There, there isn't nostalgia always for the wars that were fought in the past or the achievements of the past, but mm-hmm. really, looking to what's happening in his present. Um, the other thing that I think that he engages, uh, like a lot of people, everyone in, in the United States and in the, uh, in the 20th century, <clears throat> uh, was, you know, technology and industry, and mm-hmm. the, you know, the transformations and uh, ways of making a living. <clears throat> uh, and, uh, you know, the automobiles, Indians engaged automobiles at the same time that everyone else did. Um, and, <clears throat> uh, he loved airplanes, uh, and, and, you know, the camera itself is a machine that he is using, uh, kind of within the legacy of his father, who I already mentioned of, you know, re- recording histories, uh, uh, preserving memories, um, for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look at, at some of those ways rather than thinking about, you know, design or color or surface concerns that, you know, modernist painters were, um, <clears throat> that I think that there is a way that modern culture, um, <clears throat> that Pula engaged the modern experience of the country and culture um, with his photographs. Yeah. And, and the time period that you choose is really perfect for telling this story, right? Because he lives between 1906 and 1984, and you really focus on a small period of his life between 1925 and 1945. You know, what's going on in that particular period that makes it so ripe for the story you're trying to tell? There's a lot going on. I mean, I think that's other thing that I could have uh, touched on as far as the transformations in federal policies. Mm-hmm. 
the New Deal policies that are uh, much more pro-Indian. I mean, that by this time, it's it's coming out in terms of studies that assimilation has failed in terms of a policy. Um, and there's more emphasis on returning authority to tribal governments and <clears throat> uh providing support for the arts um, <clears throat> and uh, there and, and in that and uh, supporting the arts as a viable uh, means of making a living and uh, because of that there is more attention more support for uh, groups of artists more exhibitions of art that are coming out for the, the first time you know Indian art is being looked at as art and what we might say are problematic ways at this time, but it, but it is a transformation for the period to be looking at Indian art as art and not as artifact mm. or <clears throat> specimen mm -hmm. uh, to be studied. Uh, so that, those are some of the main things. There's, a, you know, Oklahoma, there, it has the highest at this time population of Native Americans living uh, in close proximity to each other. Uh, so a lot of them are engaged in making art and seeing what each other's doing, whether it's painting or beadwork or, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, sculpture or, or any of the, of the arts that are going on. So uh, there's quite vitality, not just in visual arts, but in uh, poetry and literature. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, you know, I have Pula... Also engaged, I kind of consider him a, a marginal figure. Mm -hmm. I don't see him, as I've learned from the family, as really anyone who had a leadership position, political or or even within his community. But I very much see him as someone that's, that's engaged, that's in support of uh, and working with um, a lot more of, of the leaders, uh, observing and documenting a lot of the political initiatives towards sovereignty, towards bettering uh, the life of the people in his community, <clears throat> uh, collaborations between leaders and senators at the time um, that are going on that he's taking pictures of as a result of his uh, brother-in-law. <clears throat> Uh, kind of pulling him in or his other brother and, and sister-in-law kind of pulling him into their um, entertainment business, mm -hmm. uh, vaudeville circuit, and uh, um, and kind of, you know, being an important figure with that photographic eye yeah. um, on the margins of, of a lot of transformations happening yeah. in Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much he produces, and and you know, in the book, you when you look at all of his work, um, you describe his work as kind of part of a, a counter discourse or a cultural resilience. And so, so what's Pula uh, resisting in this particular moment through his art? Um, <clears throat> to read Pula's work as a resistor, first of all, I have to say um, that <clears throat> uh, acknowledge that we don't have. Pula's voice, at least as documented. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm working uh, by inserting him into a context of resistance. And this is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm not making this up, but I'm using a lot of research. I'm using uh, the knowledge of uh, what's going on in his community, what's going on in Native American politics at the time. 
Um, and I'm also in line with a lot of the scholarship on early, early 20th century photographers and this realization mm -hmm. for a long time um, <clears throat> uh, of technology, of how it has put images of Indians out there for, you know, by 1920s for uh, a few decades. Um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, realizing that technology could be used to um, create a counter discourse, to create, uh, to correct inaccuracies. And, and actually, even though I've kind of positioned photography within its kind of uh, short history, there's a longer history of indigenous uses of mass media technologies through newspapers to also kind of create a counter discourse. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, correct inaccuracies or, uh, you know, preserve cultural information um, <clears throat> uh, or to, you know, put out other representations of people to, you know, they're, they're very aware of uh, some of the stereotypes and the misinformation and the negative imagery out there, whether it's in film, or whether it's in photographs or postcards or, um, <clears throat> you know, caricatures in illustrated magazines. I mean, they have access to all of the, this media as anyone else does. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, uh, in order to read his images that way, I mean, that's uh, what's going on. I'm inserting him into that context. Uh, and, and some of the, the yeah, some of the photographs are just are, are really beautiful that he makes. And I was wondering if you might be able to just describe one or two of, of the photographs. You know, what's really in there that's showing the resistance? Because I know that he, uh, cars, for example, are in you know lots of different photographs. I mean, he's really capturing this amazing moment in time in a lot of these photographs, and they're just really beautiful pictures that he's he's offering. Uh, they are. I mean, one of the images that I talk most about that seems to really set up this uh, discourse of resistance <clears throat> uh, uh, is the one where he's, it's actually the period of, of when he is in the, uh, in the mm. Navy. Uh, not the Navy, sorry. Yeah. The Air Force. <laughs> um <clears throat> <laughs> don't get my don't get my uh, <laughs> <mixed> up. Um, <clears throat> and he's uh, it's on a, a holiday and his friend Gus Palmer has come into town and on a visit and he set up a, a photo shoot inside one of the um, <clears throat> uh, bomber airplanes and his friend is holding a machine gun and Pula is holding a camera. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of aligned visually. I mean, this, I think, is one of his most successful and, and complex images of layering of a lots of um, dichotomies of modernity in terms of you know, airplanes or air force or even concepts of soldiers uh, here as he's they're both wearing war bonnets, uh, but also are wearing uh, the <clears throat> uh, U.S. Army uh, uniforms. So. <clears throat> um, uh, there's lots of complexities that he set up and, and, you know, placing his camera uh, as I'm reading it, you know, in line with a weapon, uh, <clears throat> uh, not so much in a, you know, mode of violence as one as a certain mm -hmm. authority. Uh, 
asserting authority with the camera. And this is where, you know, I, I very much read him as, <clears throat> uh, uh, as conscious, I guess, of his mm -hmm. impact um, in resisting inaccurate ideas of, of putting out there uh, um, either more truthful or more uh, noble portraits of you know mm -hmm. his community. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the great things about this book is it doesn't ever fall into the trap of what's you know authentic and inauthentic. Is you're really just capturing this moment that Pula and others are are going through, and Pula is just you know capturing. Um, uh, uh, these people as, as, as they're going through this very difficult moment in the, in the early 20th century of, of as, as you talk about modernity and technological changes. Um, and there's often just this, this mix of, of people in the way that they dress and, and their positioning in front of cars and airplanes and things that, um, doesn't really show up in a lot of the, uh, depictions of Native Americans in the 19th century, right? Right. Well, even in the early 20th century, there's quite a dialogue on, um, <clears throat> on whether you should include these signs of modernity or these this kind of technology mm -hmm. or exclude it. Um, and I, in one of the chapters, I compare his work to the the painters, mm. the Kiowa painters, and how um, <clears throat> uh, they, you know, it, it, and they used his photographs. Uh, and a couple and a few incidents incidents um, as inspiration for their their portraits and eliminated some of those items like uh, modern clothing or uh, cars in the background and uh, things like that, uh, which kind of shows you kind of some of the, the diverse discourses that were going on related to. Uh, you know, modernism and Indians and their art and, uh, whether they should, <clears throat> whether the, you know, the, anything that's, that was coded as, uh, Western or European uh, at the time mm -hmm. uh, should be eliminated. Um, uh, that they needed to draw only purely from this idea of the 19th mm -hmm. century past or, um, so um, it is a complex time. I mean, there isn't, you know, one, you know, authentic identity out there. And that's, that's some of the problem uh, in uh, addressing this uh, that I, I took up is uh, the complexities of mm -hmm. anyone's identity. Uh, and But somehow Indians aren't allowed to have yeah. a complex identity. They're supposed to just stay uh, as they were in the yeah. 19th century. I mean, one of the chapters I loved the most in this book was this, uh, this chapter on postcards that, uh, Pula is, is, um, using his photographs and putting them on postcards. And when I, as a historian, when I think about postcards and depictions of, of Native Americans, I think about travel companies, you know, who have these kind of very stereotypical, uh, mm -hmm. depictions. Um, and these postcards were just kind of a wonderful resistance to those sorts of images. And so, you know, why did Pula get in the business of, of trying to sell postcards? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was, you know, part, I think that's, that is, uh, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, illustrative of who he mm-hmm. was studying under. I mean, he, he was working with studio photographers who were, you know, taking pictures of Indians, going to the Indian fairs or the Wild West shows and taking pictures that they knew would be, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, they, they mm-hmm. would be able to sell. Uh, to the tourists, to the to the visitors, and I think Pula is certainly participating in that market. Uh, but you know, his family will also say that he never really made that much money. Uh, so we have to look to you know possibly other mm-hmm. motivations, and it probably speaks to his eventual appointment or unofficial appointment as the official photographer of. Uh, the Anadarko Indian Expo as photographer that there was a need to mm-hmm. take pictures uh, that Indian families also wanted pictures that they participated as consumers and buying postcards and portraits of their families you know the winners of contests um, <clears throat> um, or the participants in uh, some of the performances the dances uh, so uh, we don't always there isn't always just a, a you know non-Indian tourist market when we talk about consumption of mm-hmm. images, and so I think he's, ser- he's again in service of his community, um, sometimes making some monies, most of the time not. Um, I also uh, insert him into the context of uh, once again of this awareness of the power mm-hmm. of representation and uh, the possibility of putting other ideas out there about. Um, what it means to be Kiowa and, uh, you know, a leader, an important leader, um, important hero in mm-hmm. communities. Um, this was a time where uh, uh, in this context of resistance that um, <clears throat> uh, that, you know, people were buying these postcards and I'm talking about Kiowa people to post mm-hmm. in their own homes um, and like, uh, <clears throat> Some of the important figure, historical figures that were still alive when Pula was taking their pictures. So um, I think there are, you know, complex motivations uh, there for why he, he did the postcards. And it is probably one of the most exciting parts of the book because this is what's out there in terms of really finding mm-hmm. vintage Pula images are postcards. And when I was beginning my research, I was finding them on eBay and it was important to start, you know, collecting these to really see visually what he was thinking about yeah. when he was printing the images. Cause he really didn't print a lot of his work. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to give <laughs> listeners just an idea of just how difficult it is to do the sort of work that you're doing because, you know, Pula doesn't leave much of his, you know, much behind for you. Uh, somebody's, photographs you have to you know gather up yourselves as you just said on on ebay right he didn't leave anything behind that tells you about his you know motivations or you know his interpretation of his own work so as an art historian you know how do you do that how do you write about him without you know without this you know the diaries and you know uh stuff that he's written down for you you just have his photographs and that's it that is thank you for recognizing that. That is one of the challenges. That is one of the challenges. And this book is full of a lot of work. I mean, I began in 2004 and the book just came out in mm-hmm. 2016. So uh, it is a, a long journey and it very much began with his family. I mean, that really was key. Um, I couldn't have 
uh, I suppose I could have done a book without them, but it really wouldn't have been, uh, uh, I don't know, relevant or that, mm-hmm. that worth that much, I guess, in terms of getting their stories down. Although the family also has uh, written their own stories, or Linda Pula in particular has published um, her own stories. And so um, <clears throat> I, I need to, uh, that mm-hmm. needs to be kept in mind uh, as well, that there's, growing publications on this work. So, you know, the, it was key to starting with interviews with the family. And then I, I was guided by Linda to other members of, of the community um, who, you know, knew of him, grew up with him. Uh, when I first started my research, there were some relatives still alive who are no longer alive that I was able to talk to because his children were born you know, mm-hmm. 1940s, and that's just coming at the end of the, the period of time where I'm looking at his body of work, you know, from 1920, 1930, they weren't alive, and Linda was very, you know, keen on telling me uh, before my time, mm-hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, so I uh, began, you know, educating myself on what I could find as far as Kiowa history, Oklahoma history, um, Oklahoma arts, um, <clears throat> That is a lot of our time in archives, uh, in museums, um, meeting with other scholars uh, who had focused in on, on Kiowa history. There really wasn't a comprehensive 20th century Kiowa history mm-hmm. when I started. Uh, there were lots of people who had focused on various aspects of Kiowa history and culture, but um, I kind of had to pull a lot of pieces together because Pula's works engage so many different stories. Um, <clears throat> uh, I was also helped by a Smithsonian Fellowship, um, <clears throat> uh, guided by you know, Raina Green and Candace Green, scholars out there, and being able to go to the National Archives uh, and look at those records. And you know, even within those files, of course, we have to be speculative of what kind of what government officials are writing. But there are a lot of letters from mm. Kiowa people themselves and photographs that are in these files that people haven't looked at, you know, in long periods of time. And uh, they become important pieces to the story, um, not the last word on any story, but I think that anything can help kind of provide some light for the uh, <clears throat> speculative uh, kind of fragments of information um, or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, this book is not just a, you know, a biography, it seems, of, of Pula, I think, in, in part because he, he left so little behind, but it's, it's really a, a book about the a community. Um, and it, my next question is, is, how did you track down Linda and Robert Pula? They, you know, they, they seem to be throughout the book uh, that they, they pop up. How, how did you track them down? Um, <clears throat> when I first started, the, the only thing I knew was that I thought that Stanford had the images. So I started contacting Stanford uh, and Charlie Ju- uh, Junkerman, who had um, collaborated on with Linda on the show. And it was he who gave me Linda's contact information. Uh, and then so I, I contacted her, spoke with her on the phone and set up a time uh, <clears throat> to uh, come meet with them. Uh, the first meeting was in a hotel, <laughs> a long day uh, with a lot of coffee. 
Uh, <clears throat> and I was very, very inexperienced graduate student. My tape recorder wasn't working, so I was relying on pencil and paper, <laughs> the, old, the old technology, uh, to write things down as best I could at that time and get some ideas for next steps, which um, the next steps were to come back to Oklahoma, do some more um, interviews with community and family and start digging into archives. Um, the Oklahoma Historical Society has a fantastic collection of his postcards and uh, some of the other <clears throat> museums around had uh, a lot of supportive material that, that was very helpful. Um, and now... Was was Linda surprised at that point that you were that you, that you wanted to write a book on on her father? You no, know, I haven't asked Linda what she first thought. I mean, she was very. Gen- <laughs> I should do that. What she first thought of me. I mean, she probably. I think she. I think you know she tends to be very generous. Um, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. uh, with information, with conversations, and that's what I found with both her um, <clears throat> and her brother, uh, who I had the most conversations with. Um, <clears throat> And uh, so I can't speak for her. <laughs> why, why, uh, why me? Uh, there's certainly other people that have, she's engaged, uh, you know, uh, if you want to do work on Pula, then uh, basically you, you need to talk to Linda. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not the only one that's uh, certainly written on him or engaged her. Um, <clears throat> but I'm very, very, uh, of gratitude that that she did that the family has been so generous with me yeah well i like to end just by asking you what do you make of just the, the recent attention to horace pula so not just your book but also you mentioned um the stanford uh exhibition that suddenly that, that, that he's garnering uh, attention that he's never received before what do you make of that um, well, some of the recent work, I mean, it isn't, the Stanford exhibition was a while ago, it was 20 years ago now, but sure, yeah. been, the, the exhibition at the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. uh, which was <clears throat> um, co-curated by some colleagues, Tom Jones and uh, Nancy Miflo, <clears throat> uh, who have also been engaged in helping to, you know, digitize his images and uh, they worked with the family to kind of to and uh, dialogue with the Smithsonian, the National American Museum of the American Indian uh, to get uh, a, a national ex- exhibition done. Um, <clears throat> so I think that has been the instigator of, you know, a lot of the attention, uh, you know, and perhaps the publication of my book as, as, as well. I mean, there was also mm-hmm. a, um, exhibition catalog that w- that was out too. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I think through a, a lot of these, you know, collaborative efforts that uh, more attention is being given to him, <clears throat> uh, and his work is becoming more well known. I mean, it, it has been in, you know, boxes in the family's house, and uh, we're we're you know kind of all working together to. Um, <clears throat> better preserve and, you know, document uh, for everyone's uh, benefit uh, mm-hmm. for his work to become more known. Yeah, well, I hope it, it continues to uh, become more, more well-known because his work is beautiful and, and significant. And uh, Laura Smith, thank you for being on the program today with me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Yeah. 
The book is Horace Pula, Photographer of American Indian Modernity, and the author is Laura Smith. Please go out and buy the book. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.